May 24th, 2010, and you've got Oz in your ears. I'm John McCain, and I approve this message. Drug and human smuggling, home invasions, murder. We're outmanned. Of all the illegals in America, more than half come through Arizona. Have we got the right plan? Plan's perfect. You bring troops, state, county, and local law enforcement together. And complete the dang fence. It'll work this time. Senator, you're one of us. Complete the dang fence. You're one of us. Complete the dang fence. You're one of us. Complete the dang fence. Oh yeah, Radio Free Oz here on RadioFreeOz.com. I'm your host, Peter Bergman, my co-host, David Osmond. Uh, what was that? Oh, I'm sorry. I was watching the new uh, the Oil Spill Channel. You got that uh, on? The, yeah. The, the Oil Spill Channel. You know, it reminds me of those lava lamps. It, it's really exciting to watch it. And, that's very true. It yeah, does, yeah, like it the just, old days. You can yeah. just sit, sit the thing just kind of bubbling up. You know, it's they discovered now. Better they, than that fireplace. They yeah, they, they did their math. And they found out that it's 100,000 gallons a day. Or is that an hour? I'm not sure. Or it could be I, a second or a minute. It could be a second happens. or a minute. I, I don't I even want to know. I don't want to have the real facts in this, except except for the fact that I I had a miserable moment, you know. And I'm usually a pretty happy guy, you know, which is uh, somebody said, go take a look at the NASA picture. So what are you talking about? So they gave me the hot lick. I go up, and it's a picture taken by a NASA satellite of the oil slick. And it's immense so anybody like brit hume or or governor barber or all those those other fools um rush limbaugh whoever they are you know the fact is it's major major it's deep it's wide it's dark it's deadly well, they're still talking about uh, you know the the uh the state people involved in tourism are still saying there is no oil on our beaches. There's no oil here at all. It's not going to come here. And yeah. so come down and spend your money at the casinos and get on the beach and have a good time. I mean, they're, and these they're huge tarballs have nothing to do with it. These tarballs are, we buy these and put them on the beach. Well, they used to buy them and uh, they used to work in the, uh, uh, in the big slave camps. The, but not but anymore. Not anymore. Not anymore. So while talking about slave camps, etc., you heard our new opening, uh, John McCain. That is directly that's John McCain's ad. We added a little music under it, a little, shall we say, context. But that's basically where John McCain is at. And I love the fact that this man says, finish the dang fence, as if he's living in some sort of bad Larry McMurtry novel. As, you know, <laughs> I just, you know, but, but, but look, Arizona's heating up, Dave. Let me, let, let me hip you to the news. Oh, okay, so, okay. Right, this, this is good. This is good. <clears throat> Arizona Corporation Commissioner Gary Pierce is threatening to encourage the state's utilities to cut off energy delivery to Los Angeles if the city does not back down from its boycott over the state's new immigration law. 
Yeah. The city of Los Angeles. Yeah, right. City of Los Angeles, the, the uh-huh. city council passed a resolution to boycott Arizona because of the because of the immigration law. So he says, if an economic boycott is truly what you desire, I will be happy to encourage Arizona utilities to renegotiate your power agreements so Los Angeles no longer receives any power from Arizona-based genera- generation, Pierce, a Republican, wrote Tuesday to Los Angeles Mayor Antonio Villaraigosa, who is a Democrat. He says, I am confident that Arizona's utilities would be happy to take those electrons off your hands. Isn't that cute? Mm. He continued, if however you find that the city council lacks the strength of its convictions to turn off the lights in Los Angeles and boycott Arizona power, please reconsider the wisdom of attempting to harm Arizona's economy. Now, this guy, Pierce, is one of five members of this you know, a commission that that regulates utilities in the state. Arizona does sell a lot of power and water to Los Angeles. And in fact, Villaraigosa mentioned that in his letter to the guy, you know, saying, you know, we're boycotting you. So Pierce wrote that as a statewide elected member of the Arizona Corporation Commission overseeing uh, Arizona's electric and water utilities, I am keenly aware of the resources and ties we share with the city of Los Angeles. In fact, approximately 25% of the electricity consumed in Los Angeles is generated by power plants and Arizona and Villaraigosa basically gave him a polite finger. Well, Villaraigosa is not only a Democrat, he's also a Latino. Right. So there may be something in that. Possibly, I don't know. Well, while Pierce was sending this letter, Villaraigosa was in Washington meeting uh, President Calderon with Barack Obama. But I love the idea that this guy who sits on the electricity board thinks he can pull the plug. You know, we'll be more than glad to take those electrons off your hands. Well, this is the kind of bravura, John Wayne sort of stance. I'm so tired of Western, you know, Westerns in politicians. I mean, we should have gotten over that uh, with, you know, with Reagan and the before Reagan. It was Goldwater, another Arizona. Well, finish the dang fence, David. Well, I'd finish it if I just had if I just had a few people that would work on it. Well, yeah. What happened to all the undocumented labor that built every other fence in Arizona? As the federal and congressional probes continue into the causes of the Gulf oil rig explosion, new information is coming to light about the failure of a key device, the blowout preventer, to shut off the gushing well, which could have prevented the growing catastrophe. Really. And new questions are being raised about the testing of the preventers. Hearings before a House subcommittee revealed that the blowout preventer had a leak in a crucial hydraulic system and had failed a negative pressure test just hours before the April 20th explosion. That's the explosion that killed 11 workers and has totally polluted the Gulf of Mexico. I don't know if you've seen the NASA picture of the oil slick, uh, but it's, it's amazing and disheartening. Anyway, at the hearing, the government engineer who gave oil giant BP the final approval to drill admitted that he never asked for proof that the preventer worked. Hmm, wow, what an engineer. I wonder what school he went to. Probably back of the matchbook engineering college. In addition, an oil industry whistleblower told the Huffington Post that BP had been aware for years that tests of blowout prevention devices were being falsified in Alaska. The devices are different from the ones involved in the December Horizon explosion, but are also intended to prevent dangerous blowouts at drilling operations. They're cousins. 
Mike Mason, who worked on oil rigs in Alaska for 18 years, says that he observed cheating on blowout preventer tests at least 100 times, including on many wells owned by BP. As he describes it, the test involves a chart that shows whether the device will hold a certain amount of pressure for five minutes on each valve. The test involves increasing the pressure from 250 pounds per square inch to 5,000 pounds per square inch. And he says sometimes they would put their finger on the chart and slide it ahead so that it only recorded the pressure for 30 seconds instead of five minutes. How bloody cute of them. Mason and another oil worker provided sworn statements in a 2003 lawsuit that rig supervisors quote, routinely falsified reports to show equipment designed to prevent blowouts was passing state-mandated performance tests, and this reported in the Wall Street Journal in 2005. Scandal! What does it take the Department of the Interior, who the guy that's in charge of all of the, uh, you know, offshore drilling, has now resigned. Guy weighs about 300 pounds, probably all the lunches he went to with the oil executives. What does it take for them to research this issue? I mean, any of us could Google it and find it. No, no, no. They let this pass. Totally corrupt, and it is thoroughly polluting the Gulf of Mexico. It is a major, major disaster. So Rand Paul wins in Kentucky, and he says his win's good for the teabaggers. So let's just take a look at what the teabaggers are doing for and with the Republican Party. Now, the teabaggers are calling for the repeal of the 17th Amendment. Do you, do you know what that is, David? 17th oh, Amendment? Golly no, I, nobody does. I know. It's taking the selection of U.S. senators out of the hands of voters and putting it in the hands of state governments, basically, the legislatures. And that's they think that's a good idea because it'll somehow give the states more power over the choice of their senators. The people shouldn't do it. It's the people the people allow. Well, they've been doing that in Chicago for years. <laughs> I, it's not a problem. Why, why, didn't they, why about the amendment? Let the dead elect. You know, the senators, because they're more They've been doing that in Chicago. That's I true. I mean, come on, Pete. You know, that, that inspired yeah, yeah, yeah. that. Yeah, 21st well, century. Well, this, this idea of getting rid of the 17th Amendment is proving to be too far out for some Republican candidates, even those desperate enough to suck up some of the um, movement's momentum. Now, uh-huh. in the past yeah. couple of weeks, at least two mainstream Republican candidates have found themselves walking back from their brainless, opportunistic pledges to support repealing the amendment. Okay? All right, so... Teabaggers claim ending the public vote for senators would give the states more power to protect their own interests in Washington, and they won't support candidates that don't sign on the line, and that's where the trouble starts. Okay. In Ohio, Steve Stivers, a Republican candidate for the House, got slammed on the web and in the press when it was revealed he had checked the box saying he would repeal the 17th Amendment on a Tea Party survey. No fish hauled up on a deck of a boat flip-flopped as vigorously as Stivers. (laughs) That's mine. He told the press that despite signing the survey, he didn't know what he was saying when he called for an end to senators elected directly by the people they represent. Why in the world, Dave, let me ask you a question, would you vote for a candidate who doesn't know what he's saying? I I truly think these beanbags are revealing themselves and that they'll be roundly defeated in the fall. What do you think? Well, what do I think? Um, Now, why why did Rand Paul win this particular Thing. He's not the senator or anything. Well, he, first, just won the, he just won the primary, right? Right, right. Uh, Republican against, primary. Yeah. And he's, they say he's the weaker of the two candidates. Well, because it's Kentucky and Jim Bunning, who, the baseball player and a real kind of like beanbag, is the person he'll be replacing. So that's probably why. And there you go. And I personally met the guy that he beat 
who is the who is the Secretary of State, I believe. In fact, he signed my Kentucky Colonel. Uh, uh, his signature is on. I'm a Kentucky Colonel. You well, know, yeah, because people. of the radio work you've been doing down in Kentucky. Right. No, it's a total bribe. It, they just, <laughs> just bribed me and never come back to the state again. No, it's real poor poor people and poor people in Kentucky. Uh, there's no work and. But there's part of the state that nobody goes to. It's like the Bronx used to be in the in the 60s and 70s. You just don't go there. It's you know? still a place you don't go. And the, yeah. this part of Kentucky probably is still void of people. Okay. Not only in Kentucky, in Idaho, okay. one of my favorite Idaho. places where right. nobody goes. Oh, yeah. Right? yeah. Republican Vaughn Ward is in a similar pickle. Uh, Ward told a TV audience in Boise that he favored repealing the 17th Amendment, but after getting burned in the morning editions, mm-hmm. well, Ward uh, said— uh, and had and someone read the amendment to him, actually. He promptly <laughs> denied his tune. He said, I do not want to take away the power of people to elect senators. He said, what I do support is amending the Constitution and adding a two-term limit for U.S. senators. I'm not changing position. I'm clarifying. But oh. reporters in Idaho called it like it was. One columnist yelled, um, no. <laughs> well, I think uh, being a true Idahoan, he probably confused, um, you know, was trying to equate apples and potatoes, let's say, something like that. Pomme de terre and just pomme, you know, he got him kind of mixed up in his mind. Or possibly he's like many of the other representatives in Idaho, he can't count to 17. In between killing pigs, I write stuff. And that's why you have me on here today, Neil, because you've had some very astute politicians on, but I am Ted Nugent governor of Pigland. So I'm the expert on the health care bill because I kill pigs. And I just shot a monster big pig here in Texas. And seeing as how this is a pig bill created by pig bureaucrats to help out American pigs, as I approached this huge pig that looked like a beach sperm whale, I was expecting George Costanza to come out of the bushes and extract a Titleist number three ball from his blowhole. But as I was about to put a 10 millimeter slug in this pig's head, the last thing he said was, which is pig for where's my health care? They're pigs, Neil. We got to kill the pig. And in November, we got to vote the pigs out of office because this is a redistribution of wealth. This is the communist Mao Che agenda of the communist Mao Che fans in the White House. They're pigs, Neil. This is from a piece by Sharon Begley, who's the science editor of Newsweek which may not be with us for very long. When James Watson, co-discoverer of the double helix, had his genome fully sequenced in 2008, there was one piece of DNA he insisted the lab not tell him about, whether he had a genetic variant that significantly increases the chances of developing Alzheimer's disease. It's called APO capital E. The gene comes in four variants, of which APOE4 increases the risk of Alzheimer's between 10 and 30-fold. Different people have different feelings about learning what lies in their medical future, especially if it is something for which there is neither cure nor treatment. If studies coming out over the last few months are any indication, however, most of us can postpone making this difficult decision. The revolution in using DNA to read people's medical future is turning out to be more hype than hope. The latest research to throw cold water on the crystal ball powers of DNA is a paper in the current issue of the AMA Journal. 
It starts out as a standard in which scientists sequence genomes of people with and without particular diseases and identify genetic variants associated with those illnesses. In this case, Monique Bretelier of the University Medical Center in Rotterdam and her colleagues analyzed the genomes of just over 35,000 people, some healthy and some with Alzheimer's, and found that four DNA misspellings, or in the vernacular, single nucleotide polymorphisms, I think we'll go with misspellings, were connected to Alzheimer's in that they were common to people with the disease but were not found in healthy people. Okay. Until recently, that would have been that, a rigorous, thorough analysis, just over 35,000 genomes leading to headlines about newly discovered genes linked to this dreaded disease. To their credit, Bretelier's team took the next step. They used the four misspellings along with individuals' age and sex and whether or not they carried the APOE4 genetic variant that so frightened Watson. The results were not pretty. Adding the newly discovered genes did not improve the ability of a model that included age, sex, and APOE to predict whether someone would develop Alzheimer's. The genes, concluded the scientists, were not clinically useful. Throw them test tubes out the door. In a phone interview, Batelier went further, quote, Adding those genes to traditional risk factors such as age and sex does nothing to aid prediction of whether someone will develop Alzheimer's, she told the reporter. Knowing your genetic status will not help. We may still be in the Stone Age when it comes to gene-based prediction. Identifying risk genes isn't pointless, however. They can identify new causes of the disease and therefore new ways to treat it. I love that, that simile. We're in the Stone Age of gene-based prediction. Somehow I don't connect Stone Age and gene-based prediction, but we'll let that go. The finding seems to defy everything the public is being told about the dawn of a new era of personalized medicine, and it is the basis for the explosion in consumer-based genome testing, such as that offered by Pathway Genomics, whose plan to sell its saliva swab DNA collection kits at Walgreens stores was shot down by the FDA last week. Personalized medicine has many high-profile partisans, such as Francis Collins, director of the National Institutes of Health, who made the case for the field in his recent book. Nevertheless, second thoughts are clearly settling in as a result of studies like those uh, outlined above. Geneticist Steve Jones says that despite the billions of dollars that governments, industry, and foundations have poured into genomics and personalized medicine, the mountain has labored and brought forth a mouse, one that will have little effect on how medicine is practiced, let alone predicting someone's risk of disease. This may be so, but it is coming. We, I did an article, uh, read an article last week about genomics, um, you know, the, the swab test at Walgreens and the fact that it was being, you know, shut down by the FDA. It was, it's a legitimate concern run by people who really can give you significant information. Maybe not information that definitely tells you what's going on, but it gives you the larger picture. This has just begun. It won't be long before these sort of kits will be a buck or two. You'll get them as you're filling up with corn diesel at your local um, $7, $10.99. That's because of deflation. Oh, wow.
South Dakota side I saw a great vision Nearly had me paralyzed Rising up out of the mountain A great warrior's face Looking across the big sky country And I Stop my driving wheel Man and try to take it all in Badlands stretching out wide Right across to Wyoming I see the tall grass prairie Man she beginning to sway As I turned a long corner, well I saw it Now, this is from uh, one of my favorite uh, political blogs called Talking Points Memo. It appears that Mark Williams, a top Tea Party leader, enraged by a plan to build a mosque near Ground Zero, has referred to the Islamic deity as a monkey god and to Muslims as the animals of Allah. 
His Tea Party group, meanwhile, says they're not concerned about the rhetoric. Here's what he wrote on his blog just okay. last week. This is a blogger. This is a blogger. Okay. Right. The animals of Allah, for whom any day is a great day for a massacre, are drooling over the positive response they are getting from New York City officials over a proposal to build a 13-story monument to the 9-11 Muslims who hijacked those four airliners. The monument would consist of a mosque for the worship of the terrorist monkey god and a cultural <laughs> center to propagandize the extermination of all things not approved by their cult. He also posted an image of the Prophet Muhammad with a swastika on top of his head. Now, the building at, at issue that he's talking that he's so upset about yeah. is a project of the American Society for Muslim Advancement and the Cordoba Initiative. It will include a community center, a mosque, a gym, and other public spaces. The local community board voted unanimously to approve it, though such approval was not technically necessary since the Islamic groups already own the land. Now, none of this seems to have prompted any problem from Tea Party Express, the prominent Tea Party group created and run by a California GOP consulting firm. Uh, they don't want to rethink their ties to Williams. Asked uh, about the comments, their spokesman, Joe, can't pronounce his name, mm-hmm. Wirzbicki, said, it doesn't have anything to do with the Tea Party Express and the issues addressed by the Tea Party movement and was written on Mr. Williams' personal blog and not on any Tea Party Express website, blog, or social networking page. Okay? But there's more. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, just mm-hmm. a second. Hold mm-hmm. that breath. Mm-hmm. Hold that thought, whatever it was. Yeah. A Pakistani court has ordered the government to block Facebook because of a page on the social networking sites that urges users to post images of Islam's prophet Muhammad. Islam strictly prohibits any image of prophet, right? The Facebook page, Everybody Draw Muhammad Day, encourages users to post images of the prophet uh, to protest threats made by radical Muslim groups against the creators of South Park for depicting Muhammad in a bear suit during an episode earlier this year. A series of cartoons, as you remember, the Prophet published in a Danish newspaper back in 2005, sparked violent protests and death threats against the cartoonists. The creators of the Facebook page explained why they mounted the competition. They said, we're not trying to slander the average Muslim. Simply want to show the extremists the threat to harm people because of their Muhammad depictions that we're not afraid of them, and they can't take away our right to freedom of speech by trying to scare us into silence. Well, not afraid. Also, can they be tracked down? Oh, easily. Easily tracked down. There's nothing in the world to stop. Well, then I'd say that was relatively brave in this day and age where there seem to be uncontrolled uh, bombings going on among civilian populations wherever you turn. Yep. Uh, I got to say that uh, that brings me around to, um, well, here's, here's the thing. I mean, I understand that nobody's deeply felt faith and beliefs should be uh, mocked. Mocked. That's yeah. the word. Right. Mocked. Um, and and it seems to me that we are having to be very careful about not mocking anyone's faith or professed belief. But what we are mocking here is the professed belief that if you believe those things, you can blow people up in the middle of the street in Kabul. After a brief respite following the announcement last week of a nearly $1 trillion bailout plan for Europe, fear in the financial markets is building again. Ah, here it comes. This time over worries that the continent's biggest banks face strains that will hobble European economies. In a sign of the depth of the anxiety, the euro at one point fell to a four-year low relative to the dollar. 
Ah, the snowball begins to roll downhill, taking everything with it in its path. For Europe's banks, the problems are twofold. Short-term borrowing costs are rising, uh, which would lead institutions to cut back on new loans and call in old ones, which, crimp, which of course crimps economic growth. But at the same time, Seemingly safe institutions in more solid economies like France and Germany hold vast amounts of bonds from their more shaky neighbors like Spain, Portugal, and Greece. I think shaky is being real kind to Greece and Portugal. Might be okay with Spain, but Greece and Portugal are way beyond uh, shaky. They're, they're whirling dervishes. Investors fear that with many uh, governments groaning, under the weight of huge deficits, the debt of weaker nations that use the euro currency will have to be restructured, deeply lowering the value of their bonds. That would hit European financial institutions real hard. Quote, this bailout wasn't done to help the Greeks. It was done to help the French and German banks. That's uh, Nigel Ferguson. He's an economic historian at Harvard. They've poured some water on the fire, but the fire has not gone out. It's an oil fire. The world's budget deficit as a percentage of gross domestic product now stands at 6%, up from just 0.3% before the financial crisis. Let me repeat that. Before the financial crisis, the, the, the deficit against GDP was only 0.3%, but since the meltdown, it's up to 6%. I mean, that's thousands of percentage uh, higher. It's incredible. If public debt is not lowered back to pre-crisis levels, the International Monetary Fund's report said growth in advanced economies could decline by half a percentage point annually. I think that's called world depression. Okay, so the steps that were taken in order to help Greece and stabilize the market were not enough to prevent a flare-up in money market funds, a crucial but little-noticed corner of the financial system in which American investors provide more than $500 billion in short-term loans to help European banks finance their daily operations. Short-term money market. Initially, it was Greek and Portuguese banks that got the cold shoulder from American lenders, but over the last two weeks, big banks in Spain, Ireland, and Italy have struggled to secure short-term funds from the United States as the anxiety has spread. So let's take a look at it. It's Greece, Portugal, Spain, Ireland, and Italy. Ooh, holy moly. By the end of last week, even banks in solid European economies like France, Germany, and the Netherlands were caught in the undertow, according to market analysts and traders. Because of the pullback by American lenders, the rate banks charge one another for overnight loans, known as the LIBOR, for the uh, London International Offered Rate, has been steadily climbing. Money is getting more and more expensive. There's less and less of it. And the significance of LIBOR stretches far beyond Europe's shores. That is the benchmark that helps to determine the interest rate on many mortgages and credit cards held by American consumers. So Greece refuses to pay its taxes, is living an unnaturally out-of-sync Mediterranean lifestyle. Ditto Portugal. Spain has 20% unemployment and also a, a, a bogus housing market. And it's going to cost me more to use my credit card. It is one world. 
It is one world. Bank borrowing rates are still well below where they were at the height of the crisis. Fears that the problems in Europe could rebound in the United States, however, led the Federal Reserve to restart lines of credit to the European Central Bank and other central banks in conjunction with the European Rescue Package announced a week ago. That means they're spending my money. While the direct exposure of American banks to Greece is minimal, American financial institutions are closely intertwined with many big European banks, which in turn have large investments in those weaker European nations. So, for example, Portuguese banks owe $86 billion to their counterparts in Spain, which in turn owe German institutions $238 billion and French banks $220 billion. American banks are also big owners of Spanish bank debt, holding nearly $200 billion, according to the Bank for International Settlements, a global organization serving central bankers. So, with the exception of wartime, quote, the public finances in the majority of advanced industrial countries are in a worse state today than at any time since the Industrial Revolution, says William Buter, Citigroup's top economist. Okay, he quotes again, restoring fiscal balance will be a drag on growth for years to come. Yes, and America will be the queen of that drag. Do you remember those genuflexual aromas in seeding the atmosphere at the Vatican Lounge? Those cheerful entrepreneurs, smiling, all the while plastering the facade? Lattes, brioche, stracciatella e fongioli, blending the flavors by association. Madrid, Atocha, La Puerta del Sol. In the 60s, there was a taberna in the cider district called Café Coco. It was downstairs below a big stone building at the Rotunda. Their specialty, Spanish cider. A cold fermented cider of apples from Aragon. The waiter pouring from a pitcher held high overhead in one hand to a glass held behind his back in the other, not missing a drop, but splashily filling the bottom quarter of the glass with a bubbly foam. Toma pronto. Toma pronto. Drink quickly before the foam disperses before it's undrinkable. Then the cheese, queso de cabrales, a slab of yellow granular cheese on a plate, served with a small fork. Another specialty served only here at the Café Coco. In the dim light of the room, the cheese appeared unstable on its plate. A closer look indicated it was actually moving amongst itself in a strange dance on el platillo, in frente de mí, ensconzando una buena autentic. No me diga. My mentor, Agustino Manuel Mendoza de Aguilera, took up his fork and showed me, closely, 
how to mash up the gusanos enredado en el queso. Y pues ya no movieron ellos. For years, George A. Reckers has held himself out as an expert witness in court on homosexuality, arguing cases concerning same-sex marriage and gay adoption, that gay men and lesbians lead perilous lives and raise troubled children. Now Dr. Records himself is under fire, raising new legal questions about his courtroom role. The Miami New Times revealed this month that Dr. Records took a 10-day trip to Europe with a male prostitute whom he apparently had met through a website, rentboy.com. You gotta go up to rentboy.com to see where old George, you know, got his male companion. It isn't like pictures of guys from college or even construction guys or, or firemen. These are male prostitutes. No doubt about it. I mean, the man's got very definite tastes. Okay, news coverage has focused largely on his seeming hypocrisy. Given that Dr. Reckers, a clinical psychologist and ordained Baptist minister, has written that, quote, leaders of the homosexual revolt use manipulative techniques of classic revolutionary strategies to keep homosexuals from trying to change their orientation. See, he says it's an orientation, but he knows that it's deep, deep inside his psyche that he was born with it. What he doesn't dig is that it's no problem at all. But legal experts say the scandal may affect more than Dr. Recker's reputation. You think so? They say it places obligations on those who have relied on Dr. Recker's to inform the court in at least one continuing case to modify or withdraw their arguments. You see, it seems the expert witness bases his expert testimony on concepts that his life contradicts. Oh, my. Quote, each lawyer must tell the court if he comes to know that one of his witnesses has given false testimony, said Stephen Gottlers, an expert in legal ethics at New York University. That could come into play if the expert is discredited, he added. Dr. Reckers has responded to the storm of coverage with a mix of withdrawal and defiance. Well, that's a nice response. Uh, a no like, I'm sorry, or hey, I'm a bloody hypocrite, or hey, I'm going to go into therapy, or I'm just going to disappear off the planet. He resigned from the board of the National Association for Research and Therapy of Homosexuality, a group that argues that sexual orientation can be altered through therapy. Well, if Wreckers wants to get straight, he better go to therapy right now. It reminds me of that site in the Republican convention. I believe, yes, it was the, the, the convention for the, the, the one that they stole, the first the one in 2004, in which there was a, gay, a homosexual Republican up on the platform, and the whole first two rows were people like Wreckers trying to pray the homosexuality out of him. It's a great country. Regardless of what occurred in Europe, the trip could affect cases in the United States. Dr. Recker's involvement, for example, has been critical in a suit challenging a Florida law banning adoption by gay parents. His testimony was a major part of Attorney General Bill McCollum's defense of the statute, for which the state paid Recker's $120,000. McCollum, of course, has since flip-flopped like the fish he is, distanced himself from Recker's as everybody else in the right-wing crazy movement is doing. I mean, they, they're kissing him once one day, and the next day he smells bad. Because guess what? He's gay! 
In the November 2008 decision declaring the Florida gay adoption law unconstitutional, Judge Cindy Letterman of the Miami-Dade Circuit Court wrote that Dr. Reckers was motivated by his strong ideological and theological convictions that are not consistent with the science. Yeah, deep theological convictions in science don't often go well together, unless it's Sarah Palin science, in which case kids played with dinosaurs and the earth is what, 5,000 years old, 500 years old? Maybe it was put together yesterday and we just forgot. So she says that the theological convictions are not consistent with the science and are not credible. Mr. McCollum, a Republican who is running for governor, has appealed that decision. Yeah, good luck. In papers filed well before the scandal broke, he denounced the court's wholesale disregard of testimony by Dr. Records and another expert, calling the decision uh, arbitrary, stressing Dr. Records' qualifications and stating that, quote, the trial court entirely discredited him based on his religion. Yeah! To Professor Gillers, Mr. McCollum is now obligated both as a lawyer and as a public official to alert the appellate court. It is not enough for the attorney general simply to refrain from relying on the testimony in his brief and argument, he said. He has an affirmative duty to speak up. Yeah, Mr. McCollum, you've got to go tell us that your chief witness was a, what shall we say, psychological hypocrite. Look, I'm not condemning Rutgers. I'm condemning the bad work that he's done. I'm condemning all the lies and prejudice and homophobia that he has promoted. But I know the man is in deep pain because he really thinks that he is Satan's tool. He really thinks that his homosexuality is somehow something that was brought on him because he's a sinner or something like it. I wouldn't want to be inside George Rutgers, and I do hope that somehow he can come to live with who he is and what he is. I really do. Because then maybe he can start undoing all the harm that he has propagated in the last, what, 20 years as an expert witness? I was a soldier boy in the twilight of my still could feel love and a trust in above for the truth I fought with bravery then I left my gun behind but the misery I've seen never wiped itself clean from my mind
Well, Pete, uh, you know, the, here's a story that showed up in the, in the Times, and I read it to myself, and I found myself actually tearing up. And then uh, I started reading it aloud to Judith, and it actually made me cry, this story. So I'm going to try to get through it uh, today um, on this show, because it, it, it really says something to, uh, to our whole generation. And this is how it begins. Catherine Seeley is the author. The telltale clues at this weekend's festivities in Boston, 40 years late, included the tie-dye t-shirt on a woman who also wore a peace symbol necklace and a garland in her hair. I thought everyone would be dressed like this, she said. When the group stood for its class picture, even those in suits and ties made the peace sign. Others raised clenched fists. And one of them marched in the commencement processional with an anti-war poster slung around his neck. The accoutrement and spirit of their era still radiate from the class of 1970, despite the harsh and abrupt ending to their years at Boston University. That spring was supposed to bring a flowery conclusion to their four years of academe, but President Richard M. Nixon had invaded Cambodia. National Guardsmen had gunned down students at Kent State, killing four and wounding nine. Young men still faced the draft, and this campus, like many across the country, was in turmoil with strike sit-ins, building takeovers, and firebombings. The situation became so incendiary that for safety's sake, university officials called off final exams canceled graduation, and sent students packing. This weekend, on what would have been the 40th anniversary of that ceremony, the university sought to make amends with a proper graduation. Oh, that's, now, that's wonderful, David. Now, I mean, that, the paragraph about Cambodia and Kent State and facing the draft and canceling the graduation took me right back to our writing sessions, and perhaps people would be interested in knowing this uh, about our album, uh, Don't Crush That Dwarf, Hand Me the Pliers, was written directly in the midst of this. Yes. And when Porgy Tirebiter says, you know, golly, uh, you know, your high school has disappeared. And he says, where are we going to graduate from? There you go. That's like a headline from 1970. And I was just thrown back into that era and that chaos. And here are these two teenagers trying to get out of school. Isn't everybody? He says, I'm just trying to get out. Isn't everybody? Yeah. I mean, golly, the truth of that experience is more deeply layered into that album than I ever thought. But I'd like to say to these 40-year-later, too-late graduates of Boston University, boy, <sighs> Well, Pete, uh, I like to read the New York Times food section, mm. and it amazed mm. me. Uh, I get recipes out of it, you know, and I like to read the reviews of restaurants I'll never eat in. You know, thousands of restaurants in New York, it, oh, they cook the most interesting food. I never eat there. Oh, my God. Well, anyway, there's this huge piece, and by golly, there was a bong right there, along with all the rest of the cutlery and knives and forks. There was a big bong, and I thought, well, what's this about? Well, it's sort of about cooking with pot, but you see, it isn't actually cooking with pot. It's cooking sort of food for people who 
are potted, as it were. Uh, for example, how would you like a cinnamon bun cereal milk soft serve with chocolate fudge topping? You mean if I've got the chucks? Yes, uh-huh. Uh, now, here's this lady who said, of that dish, she said, and I love this, so 21st century, it's so random that it's something you would eat if you were totally baked. Wake and bake and eat a what? Well, that's where we're going here, okay. Pete, because the, it's, they're making food for stoners. There's a whole thing of making food that stoners would like to eat, and it's a big restaurant uh, thing. Now, chefs who do smoke, and they do smoke, say that, uh, that the, the quality of the food, the quality of the wine, the whole thing is about quality, including the pot. The quality of marijuana you're getting, just like the quality of booze you're getting and the quality of food you're getting, is better, says this cook. Now, although marijuana has long been a part of restaurant culture, its current prominence res uh, results, he said, Mr. Fecinelli, from a triple coincidence. And here they come, because talk this up in your fingers. More states are legalizing marijuana or offering medical marijuana plans, so yep. there's more and better pot in circulation. That's true. There, Certainly there true. There you go. At the same time, diners are wild about high-end snacking. Yeah. Witness the rise of food carts and the elevation of humble dishes like pizza, hamburgers, and pork buns. Here it's the taco carts on yeah. the West Coast. Okay. I haven't been like eating a lot of pork buns here off the island. Not they'll, often. They'll be here sooner okay. or later. Go ahead. The chefs of the whole stoner cuisine, love that, uh, 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 the whole stoner cuisine movement are just as obsessive about their marijuana as they are about their olive oil. It's like getting the best cheese, Mr. Facinelli says. I have like four or five different types of marijuana in my refrigerator right now. It goes hand in hand with a cup of coffee. It's called wake and bake. Grab a cup of joe and get on with it. But you know, what we loved in the old days was instant breakfast. Hello, sir. A little surprise for the little woman from the little flower shop here around the little corner. We have a special today on roses, begonias, and nightshades. No, no, I want that big vase of carnations there in the window. Ah, yes. Two dozen of our most beautiful blooms. Just let me wrap them oh, up. Oh, no, here. no, no, bother. I'll eat them here. Good gracious, sir. What is it you're doing? Oh, well, I just couldn't face another one of my wife's brand muffin prune juice and hominy grit breakfast. So she says, if you don't like the way I cook, why don't you go out and have a carnation instant breakfast? How do you <laughs> like them? They're a little dry. Well, no wonder, sir. You're supposed to mix a carnation instant breakfast with milk. What a colorful idea. Are there any other flavors? Of course. Hollyhock, snapdragon, gladiola, cactus. I think I'll stick with carnation. Put the miracle additive in your day. THC. Take home carnation. Instant breakfast. Start off your day with carnation instant breakfast and shuffle off to Buffalo. Those are real. Firesign Theater was hired a long time ago, a long, long time ago, to do a series of commercials for Carnation Instant Breakfast, and we threw in that THC thing, and they never caught it. They never caught it. Well, uh, now, if you're cooking with grass, I'm going to go back to uh, one of the great books of the time, A Child's Garden of Grass, and, <laughs> uh, well, this is what it says to do. Uh, <clears throat> let me read this. The spoons in your silverware drawer are usually shallower than regulation measuring spoons and probably hold about half the volume. Figure that one heaping teaspoon is equally uh, is easily equal to one good portion okay, of, of pot. The more you grind the grass, 
Using a blender or pressing it through a very fine strainer, the less gritty the dish will be. I'll bet. <laughs> if you use grass in a cake recipe, be sure to add more liquid or eggs or anything. And take out the <laughs> sticks and the <laughs> seeds, chef. Just because the grass will make the cake much heavier than, than usual. And uh, Man, this cake is heavy. <laughs> one of the recipes is, is for fraud tea. Another one is for terrible tea. And um, the best one is for contact high. But, you know, Peter, your experience long, long ago in the child's garden of grass was the real one. Creativity. It's a known fact that grass increases creativity from 8 to 11 times. In fact, everyone finds that they're more creative stoned than straight. All of us are latent Michelangelo's or Caruso's or Da Vinci's and think we can paint or sing or write if only we tried hard enough. singing in the shower, Dave. That's pretty good, Pete. Oh, yeah. Well, thanks for being with us. Um, we're coming up at the end of the show here on Radio Free Osmond. We want to thank Dave Osmond. Hey, um, I couldn't be happier to be here. Uh, John Cummings, our ones and zeros man, Phil Fountain, our designer, Tom Gedwillow, our webmaster, Dave Maloney, is our audio engineer and audio producer. Bill McIntyre produces the whole thing. And Scott Wilde is our social media guru. Coming at you tomorrow. Posting up.